Welcome to the Jacob Burns Filmcast. I am co-host Patreon Prey, here with my co-host Mike. Hello. <laughs> and on today's show, we're going to be talking about our favorite movies of the year, parentheses, so far. Q1 2020. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're going we're gonna to break it up throughout the year, keep this uh, manageable, instead of just doing best of the decade and giving you 10 years of yeah. fun to catch up on. I'm sure our like, end of the year episode is going to be... Well, like three hours long, probably. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Bonus, bonus double feature episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so let's get started. Sure. I, first thing I want to talk about is Birds of Prey. Yes, that's actually. what was my first thing also. Okay, sweet. Birds of Prey is so good. Yeah. <laughs> so Birds of Prey is one that I was really looking forward to. I love Harley Quinn. Um, she's just a great character who has very often just played the sidekick to Joker. And while we've spoken before on this podcast about the many shortcomings of Suicide Squad. The Oscar war winning Suicide Squad. <laughs> get it right, Paige. Pains me. Don't do Killer Croc like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, while, we, while we've spoken about Suicide Squad being uh, a lackluster film in the past, Margot Robbie brought a real vivacity to the character of Harley Quinn that I loved. And also, uh, I have a personal bias that my friend Robert Gregory Hopwood um, did costume concept illustration for the film. And last year, I was at Comic-Con with him when they released the first sneak preview of the trailer and one of her signature outfits in the film. And I've been really excited for it ever since. And I really enjoyed it. So just piggybacking off that, let's talk about the costume design. Yes. Yes. Because yes. it is insane. Not even, not just Harley's outfits, but like growing up, I think I, have to, I probably mentioned this on the show. Like I was a kid constantly bullied in school, like, like, you know, loving Batman and Superman mm -hmm. and Spider-Man, all that kind of stuff. And like getting beat up constantly for just like waiting for a hero to come. Yeah. Sad story, whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so like the fact that we live in a time where like this kind of stuff is popular and just like second nature nowadays. And the fact that we got a movie starring black mask as a villain yeah. is like absolutely insane. And not only did they nail his costume, but they put such a weird, like in a good way, a weird flair to it that mm -hmm. like totally matches like the bombastic crazy tone of this film. Man, it's so cool. Yeah. My favorite design of Greg's is um, what has been referred to alternatively as the confetti jacket. Yes. Just sort of these glittery streamers coming down mm -hmm. in this like cropped sweater look um, that is just so badass and fantastic and radical and totally wild. And modern and like yeah. still grounded. Like watching the first trailer, I thought like, oh, they're going to try to do the Suicide Squad thing again where like Suicide Squad... The trailer I thought was fantastic, but the film, like, they tried to do that in, like, the first, like, half hour of the film, and then, like, totally went into, like, the Zack Snyder, dark DC, whatever craziness, and it was just, like, this weird mix match of styles, and Birds of Prey, and I, if you could look up the director's name uh, while I'm doing this, yeah. so kudos to her, um, I think this is her directorial debut, she wrote uh, Bumblebee, um, she went all in on the bombastic crazy vibe because that is Harley Quinn. That is her style. Like we are matching her psyche and her like just free nature in this entire film. And it totally works. Yeah. And, and, and like in Suicide Squad, it felt like very out of touch. Like it felt like we're watching a 90s Eminem music video. 
but this <laughs> felt like we were in a postmodern Gotham City where like just this bright, colorful, everybody's kind of just living in this grounded world. Absolutely. And like I totally believed it the entire time. So her name is Kathy Yan. Yes. Um, she did direct a comedy drama film called Dead Pigs in 2018. Uh, but Birds of Prey was far and away her first foray into the kind of comic book universe. Yeah. And I did. I, I feel like she nailed it. And the mood of the film felt so true to the spirit of Harley Quinn. Yeah. And I mean, the the full title was Birds of Prey colon The Emancipation of Harley Quinn. And then release day happens and they fumble yeah. to change that. Yeah. Which is an interesting choice. Yeah. And that's part of the reason that I wanted to talk about it is that I felt like um, it really got the short end of the stick. I think that they're marketing strategy was not what it could have been there was definitely not enough coverage relative to other dc movies and i know it was up against a lot especially coming off of award season where joker someone that exists obviously in the same part of the dc universe um helmed by joaquin phoenix really kind of stole the spotlight i feel like in a lot of ways and then doing things like changing the title after the film has already come out is not the best way to continue promoting it once it's already in theaters. And they also didn't do enough to kind of stymie the pushback from people who aren't as interested in female-led comic book films. Yeah. And I was really disappointed by that because I felt that it wasn't just a good comic book movie with a female lead. It was a good comic book movie. I think it's the best in the new like DC universe. I think it's the best DC movie. Yeah, it's I absolutely. I would agree with you 100% on that. I thought that it was so fun and punchy and really gave Harley Quinn a spotlight that she hadn't had to date. So yeah, just, just going off numbers. Um, yeah. Harley Quinn worldwide so far did 195 mil. And then comparatively, I, I'm just comparing it to Shazam, which was, I believe, the previous DC release, uh, 365 mil. That's wild. Like, Harley Quinn is such a bigger name than, than Shazam. Shazam. Yeah. And, like, how is it not doing, like, right. like, I get it. Birds of Prey, like, just Birds of Prey as a title, not a known thing. Yeah. I That's not, like, a mainstream thing. But so I understand, like, the last minute title change, but. Don't do it on release day. Yeah. Don't like have like I saw it at uh, my local bow tie like that still had the the full title Birds of Prey Emancipation or Harley Quinn. Uh, and then I saw like that weekend just like tracking numbers and stuff. AMC's had it and Alamo had it as Harley Quinn colon Birds of Prey. Yeah. And, like that just muddies the messaging so much that like totally. that feels like it's two separate movies. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I just, yeah, I w wanted to start with that cause that was one that I really enjoyed and it felt like people were really quiet about it and I was, yeah, I was it kind of came and went, that. which is a real bummer. Yeah. Yeah. If you haven't seen it or if you're not interested in DC stuff, I totally could recommend it. Yeah. You don't need to know much about it. You just need to know Harley Quinn is Joker's girl, ex-girlfriend at this point. Right. In, the, in this context. Yeah. Uh, ex. Kudos to them for leaning into Suicide Squad. Yes. Like, I didn't think they were going to acknowledge it at all, but they, like, straight up, this isn't a spoiler or anything, they straight up use scenes from Suicide Squad, which I really, really appreciate. But in a way, and again, like, we've talked about not loving Suicide Squad, and I feel like this was a way to be like, okay, we have this premise, we have this cast, which is really pretty good, let's see what we can actually make of this, yeah. and doing such a better job with it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now let's see what the Suicide Squad <laughs> looks like. Because, you know, speaking of freaking muddying up messaging. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know Tyka's in that? No, yeah, I did not. Yeah, he's in it. I can't wait. As, all right. Yeah, that was Stay a tuned. shrug for all yeah. the listeners. <laughs> Off-camera shrug, yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, yeah, you stole my number five. So <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with another little art house film, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog. Yes! <laughs> Paige, did you see Sonic the Hedgehog? I haven't seen it yet, but I love Sonic. Please see Sonic the Hedgehog. This is for everybody listening. Please see Sonic the Hedgehog so I can get a sequel to this movie. (laughs) I want it so badly. So this film is infamous now for the whole Sonic design thing. I feel like even out of our circle that like made like Hollywood reporter headlines. Yeah, it was a big scandal. Yeah, this nightmare creature gets released and everybody's (laughs) freaking out about it, which very understandable because yes. yes it was a nightmare creature yes. my first reaction to that trailer i was like okay this is the best we're gonna get right i'll take it for context i'm a massive sonic fan i grew up with the video games uh sonic one was my second video game ever f- after the lion king when i was two years old <laughs> i was way too young um so and i grew up with the franchise i played every almost every single sonic game i adore the character i adore the world i granted i'm one of a very few people in that in the world of, <laughs> of gaming and stuff that really appreciate Sonic in the way I do. Um, so I was like genuinely really, really excited when this got announced. I, given the history of video game films, I knew I shouldn't get my hopes up. But after Detective Pikachu, which Paige and I both yes. adore, yes. I was like, you know what? Maybe there's a chance. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a slight glimmer of hope. So yeah, trailer drops. I'm like, all right, cool. This is a. 90s Jim Carrey film with a with weird a horrifying puppet blue blue man <laughs> Tobias from yeah. the Arrested Development. I blew myself. Just, just cut in half. Yeah. Um and obviously the internet did the internet and there was a whole uproar. <laughs> and they like kudos like I'm still so fascinated that they actually like had the strength that's maybe the term I use because I don't want to say what I was actually going to say <laughs> on a podcast uh, for an organization we work for um, to actually like take a step back, push the film back and actually like listen to people and redesign the film, uh, yeah. redesign the character. Um, and man, it, they killed it. Like the design is perfect when they released that new trailer. Like I was like pleasantly surprised and really happy for it in the back of my mind. I still think it's all like a marketing ploy to mm-hmm. get interest in this film. Cause I think it's doing as well as it did because of a curiosity with that. You think the version that was released was the version all along and they released a teaser with yes. a horrifying Sonic to generate. Yes. Buzz? I really do think that <sighs> I so like this conspiracy theory. I've heard. So there, I've heard multiple like different things to contradict that theory, but, um, just that teaser trailer, like it doesn't look like it, like design aside, it didn't look like it actually belonged in the scene. Like there's the scene where he's like in the trailer, he's sitting in the car and like, he like leans towards James Marston, like very awkwardly. It looks like it's not, it looks like terrible CG, which it is, but I don't know, it just looks very much like they took the original out and put it in. Mm-hmm. I know I'm like a truther in this like, <laughs> kind of aspect. Um, and I was also watching a uh, an interview with Ben Mendelsohn, and they showed some, some behind the scene footage of um, James Marsden actually interacting with the the stand in puppet. It looks like the new design. It doesn't mm. look like the old design. So like that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's also interesting. But on the flip side, uh, 
I, apparently the the studio uh, that designed the original one, like there was major layoffs and I think it might've shut down. It was like a very oh. like low budget kind okay. of studio that did it. So who the hell knows? Yeah. Uh, that being said, uh, cause I could rant about Sonic for like 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> Sonic is so fun. It's so bright. It's so colorful. It just nails the actual spirit of Sonic the Hedgehog and that world so well. Uh, there's like, it's, I can't imagine being able to think of the premise of a live action Sonic film and like to adapt it so faithfully from the games. Cause the games are like ridiculous. You're running through a forest and then you're running through a chemical plant and then you're <laughs> running through a casino. And why are you just running? And they made it work so, so well. Yeah. And there's enough fan service in the film where like literally, and I am not afraid to admit this. I cried multiple times Aww. in the film cause I've spotted some like little things, right. some obvious things. And if people have seen the film, like the thing at the end made me like scream in the theater, like around all the children that were with me. <laughs> um, and yeah, man, they just nailed the vibe and like kudos to James Marsden who like, I normally don't love he was great. Mm -hmm. Kudos to Jim Carrey. Freaking nailed it. Yeah. He I mean, was he's so good. I haven't seen it, but I, what I've heard is that it's just sort of like peak 90s Jim Carrey. It is. And I thought I was going to hate that. Yeah. Like, I thought like, no, this can't leave the 90s. He's not going to, it's just going to be really cheesy and really over the top and it's going to be really annoying, but it works. That's it's awesome. so good. Yeah. And um, Ben Schwartz is a phenomenal Sonic. In that initial teaser, there's the infamous meow thing. <laughs> um, and like some of the other voice lines are really awkward and weird, but like his performance is so good. And it, it just, it feels like I was watching the 90s Sonic cartoon back That's in the day. Awesome. And yeah. it feels like I was playing the video game. That's perfect. And like, yeah, they made like a lot of the weird logic with the rings and gotta go fast. And like a lot of the references to the levels of stuff and what the levels actually are work very well. Mm -hmm. And they somehow grounded Sonic the Hedgehog. And yeah. I want a sequel really badly, so please pay Go see so it. much money Make for this movie. Make all of my streams come please. true. Yeah. <laughs> Get me Detective Pikachu 2. Get me my Pokemon Red and Blue spinoff. Get me my Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Oh my gosh. Well, we just need to see Team Rocket on screen, but I digress. God, please. I digress. Quick side note. <laughs> we're going to diverge from top five for a second, because yeah. now we're going to get into our art house stuff, <laughs> I'm, I'd imagine. Um I recently, uh, over the weekend, I watched the uh, Pokemon Mewtwo Strikes Back remake. Nice. No. Really? Yeah. Oh. oh. I saw that on Netflix. Like, uh, you've seen the original. Yes. Watch it. I'm curious to see what you think. Okay. They could have fixed a lot of the pacing issues that the original had. Like, the original's forgivable. We grew up with it. It's a perfect movie. Right. Whatever. Yeah. But, like, it does have, like, a lot of weird pacing issues. I know that's, like, kind of ridiculous to say about a Pokemon movie. <laughs> But it does. Um, the CG, like they had so many chances to like fix that kind of stuff and kind of flesh out the story even more because it is a badass story. Yeah. Um, and they kind of just don't. And like the weird CG that doesn't match the English dub all the time kind of like mm. accentuates some of the awkwardness of the weird pacing. And I don't know. Yeah. A lot of times it is beautiful. It's stunning. It's it's I, I loved a lot of parts of it. But yeah, it just kind of fell, fell flat. Mm. Yeah. They did add like a whole Mew backstory thing in the beginning. I mean, I do. I'm here for, for Mew's yeah. backstory, always. Anyways, that's been the Pokemon podcast. Yeah. Thank you for joining me this week. Uh, anyways. Yeah, yeah. I, have, I have one more um, sort of big budget one uh, cool. before we move into more niche programming. And I hope it's is, what you think of it, what I think you're going to say. I don't think it is. It's the call of the wild. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you were going to say bad boys. Oh, that's on my list. That's coming okay, up. Sorry, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> um, but no, uh, the call of the wild. 
which came out this year. It's directed by Chris Sanders. And um, as we have alluded to on this podcast before, I am a big fan of dogs. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Pets pets in general, but uh, dogs really hold a special place in my heart. And the Call of the Wild version that came out this year is obviously an adaptation of the Jack London story and follows a dog on his lifelong journey to hear and respond to the call of the wild Mm. um starts in i believe they're in the south he's the dog of a of like a judge and just sort of this huge dog in this small town hijinks ensue because he just yeah exactly exactly (laughs) um and then eventually gets kidnapped and taken up north to be a sled dog um, because during the gold rush, strong big dogs like that were so in demand um, for everything from actual gold miners to where the dog ends up, which is in a sled dog team delivering the mail across Canada. Mm. Um, and I will say the musher in that scene is Omar Sy from The Untouch- the Untouchables, the actual oh. French one that was adapted with Brian Cranston and Kevin Hart. Uh, but the French one is much better. And... From there, the dog basically just has all these different experiences up north um, and learns more and more about his basic instincts and his leadership qualities. <laughs> and it's really precious. The dog is largely CGI'd. A lot, a lot of the dogs are largely CGI'd, but not in an uncanny valley way. That's good. And there were a lot of scenes that for anyone who's had a dog or or spent a lot of time with a dog felt very natural despite the CGI, like the scene when the dog first sees snow and it steps on the snow, it does the weird paw lifting situation (laughs) that anyone who's ever taken a dog out in snow or out in booties for the The first time. Paw lifting situation. Yeah, just just this sort of kitten mittens, very awkward. um, You'd be spitting. (laughs) Yeah. and it was really sweet. I went to go see it with a friend of mine and literally an hour and he turned to me and just said, instant classic. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, the dog sort of ends its journey um, with the um, Harrison Ford character who is dealing with the death of his son. And it's it's really tender and cute. It's really good for kids. There were a lot of kids in our screening when we went. Yeah. Um, but it's really sweet and really precious and pretty well done. And I felt pretty true to the spirit of the original Jack London story. So that is definitely worth a watch. Yeah. I was really surprised when I passed by my theater over the weekend and it was a theatrical release. I thought this was a Disney Plus film. I did too. Actually, I confused it with the Willem, the Willem Dafoe. Dafoe one. Yes. Like Togo? Which, yes. Yeah. Which is about sort of like the real life Balto that I guess the, the backstory there is that I'm either I'm switching these up, but I think Balto did the the most dangerous stretch, but Togo was the dog that did the longest stretch okay. in that same um, mission to deliver vaccines to children. Uh, and I I originally thought it was also a Disney yeah. Plus movie, or confused it with the Willem Dafoe one. It is not; it is a theatrical <laughs> release. Um, but it's great. Just I'm I'm here for all dog movies. It's a great year for dogs. It is. Togo, <laughs> Call of the Wild, Sonic. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, my next one's gonna be quick. Uh it's a short by the Safety brothers. 
Oh yeah. In Goldman versus Silverman. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is a short that was released uh, sometime in January, like right after New Year's, because I think I watched it when I was on break mm-hmm. from for the holiday. Um, is a short starring Adam Sandler, yep. shot in Times Square, uh, and it's literally the battle between. A living like two living statues one gold one silver mm-hmm. and it's like the most new york attitude filled thing i've ever yes. seen in my life and it's so beautiful and so great yeah i think it's only like 10 minutes long i think yeah it's pretty short um yeah i mean there's not much to say about it it's, it's definitely just like a i was about to say a period piece it's not a period piece uh it's definitely just like a, a very like a another like a lot of the safety brothers stuff like a love letter to new york mm-hmm. and this is very like how as stressful and like effed up as it is uncut gems is to like the financial district this is very much a love letter to what times square yeah is and like the underbelly of times square is as like obviously if you are a new yorker you are like me and despise times square and roaming around with all the tourists and all the people trying to sell you cds and comedy tickets and tour bus things but layered under that is the underbelly of that business and this really showcases that business of all this like yeah like all the cd like weird statues and the naked cowboy and the strange batman that's right near the nypd totally um it's just so good and like it kind of like most safety brothers things like punches you in the gut towards the end where like Mm -hmm. you see the aftermath of what it's like after he's done being the living statue or after they're being done with the living statue and yeah, it's it's great. Um, it's available for free online. You could go see it on Vimeo. Just search yeah. uh, Goldman vs. Silverman. Yeah. You can find it. Or the Safety Brothers uh, Vimeo yeah. account. Yeah, it came out great. like two weeks after I saw Uncut Gems in yeah. theaters. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this bonus content. Yeah. And obviously, as you mentioned, it's not a continuation no. of Uncut Gems. But it still really <laughs> captures the Safety Brothers' ability to bring to the screen these slices of life in New York City. Yeah, and like really showcase the grittiness of yeah. what New York could be. Yeah, because I, uh, I always think of those YouTube videos or just like videos that go viral where you see like Elmo fighting Superman in Times Square where they're like, is. yeah, where yeah. they're battling over turf. So as soon as I was like, oh my gosh, this is the premise of this yeah. movie. This is perfect. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, and kudos to them for like using Adam Sandler just in Times Square just with <laughs> yeah. like a half mask and nobody noticed. Right, and no <laughs> it was one like great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is shot like totally like obviously Josh and Adam Sandler are like they're acting in it, but it is yeah. shot like totally candidly on the street, like with mm-hmm. handy cams, it seems like. Yeah. And yeah, it's just it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. I forgot that was technically this year. Yeah. yeah. Good stuff. So yeah, now yeah. I'm moving to <laughs> Bad Boys for Life, which Mike and I saw in theaters, and I don't know if we've actually talked about it on the podcast before, but no, both really big Will Smith fans. Yeah, um, I love Will Smith. I would die for him. He <laughs> he was a big a big part of my childhood, and uh, a big part of that childhood was things like Men in Black and Independence Day, um, but also things like Bad Boys and Bad Boys 2, which I would see on television, even though they were probably edited a little bit for television, but still wildly inappropriate for childhood. Um, And I will say I did rewatch both Bad Boys 1 and 2 um, on TV prior to seeing Bad Boys for Life. And Bad Boys 2, I will say, was not that edited. There are still scenes with cadavers being pushed out of the back of cars and heads popping off it is it is so unnecessarily it's it's hard to censor the main plot of that movie (laughs) so um for better or for worse 
uh, Will Smith was a big part of my psyche growing up. And so as soon as we saw trailers for Bad Boys for Life, like maybe a year ago, we were <laughs> all, a long time ago. Yeah, we were all immediately like, we're going. This is this is a like campus event. One, that's it. Yeah. So on opening night, we all went to see it. And I was. We all went to see it. Me, you, okay, and Russ. Yeah. <laughs> like, all right. And I forced Kelsey to come see it. Um, okay. Also, really good shout out to my fiance, Kelsey, who I forced to watch Bad Boys <laughs> 1 and 2 the week of because she's never seen them before. She absolutely despised Bad Boys 1, which is understandable. It doesn't hold up that well. But then, like, Bad Boys 2, she was like, okay, I, yeah. I'm starting to get it. And then, yeah, three, she was in. Yeah. Um, now I have to get her to watch Fast and Furious. I mean, it's about family. It's all about family. <laughs> Anyways, I, I can't wait to talk about that in the summer. Yeah, I know. But um, yeah, Bad Boys for Life was something where we were all just sort of committed. We have to go regardless of how good it actually is. It's probably going to be garbage, but let's go anyway. <laughs> um, but so this movie was actually directed by this Belgian duo, Adil El Arbi and Bilal Falah, who are pretty young, pretty new, and brought, I thought, a really sort of like fresh take to the Michael Bay, just like wham bam yeah. style. And the, I mean, the movie could really be called Bad Boys for Life, colon, too old for this bleep. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it did such a good job of balancing the sort of like, you know, Martin Lawrence and Will Smith are kind of too old, but at the same time, we're going to give this one last go. Um, obviously, something happens that draws them in, and they yeah. have to, you know, pair up one last time before they retire. One last time? One last time. We ride together, we die together. Drone shot. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I just had such a blast watching it. I would argue that it's better than Mad Boys 2. I think it's the best of the franchise. I Yeah, I just, I had such a good time. It was genuinely hilarious <clears throat> at a lot of points, and not just in a hokey way. No, I mean, the best thing this film did was embrace the too old for this bleep concept yeah. with Martin Lawrence, especially the entire time. Yeah. And like for like to add like heart to, <laughs> I know it's going to sound ridiculous, but to add heart to what this franchise actually has right. um, to like Will Smith's, Will Smith's motivation to actually like go on this mission. Like yeah. he, like the entire film, Martin Lawrence is like, Hey, you need to quit. You're too old for this. Like, stop it, stop it, stop it. Right. But that plays into the plot really well. Yeah. It's like really, really brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was just such a fun ride. I was so pleasantly surprised by how genuinely entertaining it was and not just in this constant callback to nostalgia way. Yeah, no, it, was, it, it felt fresh. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think what was Bad Boys 2? Like 2000, it was early 2000s. Early 2000s. Yeah, I can look it up. Like, but, it's um, insane. That, like almost 15 years later, it just still felt so fresh and so relevant. And, yeah. Like, it, yeah. Absolutely. And I love that we're like, they, Sony confirmed, was it Sony? Yes. Yeah. Sony confirmed we're getting another one. Yeah. And I cannot wait. Yeah. Bad Boys. So Bad Boys 2 was 2003. So yeah, we're 17 17 years down the road. It's insane. And again, obviously the premise was like, they're getting older, but doing it in a way that was still really, really fun and still tons of action. And in a way that was a lot more sentimental um, than the last two movies have been Yeah, about this, you know, this bromance between the two of them. Uh, I dare to say a perfect film. 
I mean, I'm not gonna, yeah. I'm not gonna argue. With uh, that. The only critique is that we didn't get a uh, Will Smith banger. That's true. That's, I will. That's the only, the only bad thing. I will say that I definitely have a bias towards films that are paired with a Will Smith. Yes. Song release. Yes. So hopefully that goes with that. Saying. Hopefully we fix that. Fingers crossed for four. Sony Records, please <laughs> fix this. <laughs> Uh, okay, we should actually talk about some serious films. <laughs> um, my second favorite film of the year so far is The Assistant, which uh, we played here at the Burns. Yes. Um, it is... I'm going to start with the negative first. And it, this isn't... It, this isn't really a knock against the film. It's a knock against how it was marketed. Um, this film was very much marketed as a crazy, bombastic thriller. Mm-hmm. I'm using the word bombastic a lot in this podcast, and I really appreciate that. That's the right That's okay, talking. though. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, it was marketed as, like, this insane thriller and, like, this really high-energy, for a lack of a better term, chase through what this plot that we're following. Um, it is the opposite of that. It is a very slow, droning, like, observation piece. Um this film follows a young woman who is starting as an assistant uh, at a film production company. Mm-hmm. Um, and her boss is a Harvey Weinstein type yeah. of character. Uh, and I don't think I have to go into much more than that. Like you get the gist of what yeah. the, the film is about. But what this film achieves so brilliantly is it tackles sexual harassment in such a delicate way mm-hmm. that it's not in your face and disgusting and horrific with this imagery or anything like that you are literally for, first off you don't even see the harvey weinstein s character you don't even get his name or anything he's just very much in the background the entire film and you are literally like following this assistant on just a day in, day in the life of her and at her job and i after the film ended, I was like overhearing um, some people behind us and they were like, that wasn't a thriller. That film was about nothing. Nothing really happened, blah, blah, blah. And I understand that because it literally, like literally, literally nothing happens in the film. If you are just watching it on like the surface level of just following her and they are in her life, the entire plot happens in the background and it is executed perfectly. It's so haunting. It's so like, it just fills you with dread so much. And again, it's not disgusting or and it's handled with such care. And yeah, the, the filmmakers did such a phenomenal job with it. And yeah, I, I can't recommend it enough. Yeah. Yeah. I, it was interesting too. Cause, um, so I handle all the digital marketing for the burns. And so whenever we get a new movie, we'll get, you know, all the social media assets and the press kit. And it was really interesting reading through all the materials when we got it that referred to it as a, you know, a workplace thriller for the Me Too era. Yeah. And again, whether or not the moniker thriller is accurate, um, I do think it's almost surprising that it took this long to get a movie about sort of the Me Too era and the way workplace norms are shifting yeah. and the way we're now more conscious, thankfully of what is and is not appropriate in a workplace culture. Yeah. The easy comparison. Uh, and we spoke about this during our Oscar podcast is bombshell mm-hmm. where I didn't see bombshell, but from what I heard from it with, uh, through our colleague, Adrian Frank, who was on that podcast, um, that was done in a very like Hollywood way right? to like be spicy and like, 
do more of a thriller kind of thing. And this was done more like in a grounded, realistic way. Right. And yeah. that's and that's the thing too that and I a, think a, a delicate way and like a sensitive way, like understanding like, hey, there are gonna be viewers seeing this who have dealt with this in some fashion. Yeah. Not like working for a film production company or anything like that, but can relate to this kind of film. And if you have an experience like that, you don't want to see this disgusting character totally. violating people. Like, yeah. no. Absolutely. And I, I think the difference too is that in Bombshell, you know, the three women who are facing these um horrific situations were all big, you know, headliner names. Yeah. Whereas the assistant, as the title would suggest, is just about this one person. Who is very much, her job is to be very much in the background, just supporting the entire, well, supporting the boss, but like mostly in the film, supporting almost the entire staff. Right. That it's, that it's more about almost how do you deal with, um, the fact that you might be enabling this behavior or facilitating it versus what do you do when you're actually faced with it? Um, And I think that's such an interesting way to look at it. And something that I love that when a film can nail it, it really, really is effective. Um, The assistant barely has any music in it, Mm. or I'm pretty sure has no music throughout the film. Interesting. Um, Maybe in, I think just in the beginning during the opening credits and like, as like we're setting up a little bit, um, like literally, like I said, this this film takes place in a span of a workday. Like I think it's presumably her day is starting at like four a.m. So like as she's starting her day, you get like an opening score, mm-hmm. but like that's it for the film. And the fact that this film carries its tone and its mood without the support of music, and I think I've mentioned this on the show. I'm a huge music person. Obviously, I'm the audio engineer at this place, so I am <laughs> a huge proponent on score as we spoke about on this podcast. Yeah. Um, but when you could nail tone and mood and tell your story in such an effective way without the support of a a tone piece score it's really really something yeah yeah it it hits even harder for sure it it makes the film feel empty but not in a bad way Mm -hmm. because like you want to like i the goal is i'd imagine is to feel that way (laughs) and like (laughs) damn you'd really really do yeah yeah it it struck a really really heavy chord and mm-hmm. i cannot recommend it enough don't watch the trailer or anything just go in blind yeah because yeah the trailer is going to set up different expectations mm-hmm. and yeah you might be a little bummed out you might be a little bored um but yeah no go in blind worth a watch also a very short film it's like under two hours which i really really appreciate mm-hmm. yeah we don't need two and a half hour films <laughs> <laughs> please yeah i'm talking to you bean pole <laughs> which felt like seven hours long <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay, I'm gonna pivot because I think I'm pretty sure you have something on your list that I'm is my last one. Probably. So I'm gonna pivot to one more that also really does not have much of a score, and I was really impressed by, which is First Cow um, by Kelly nice. Reichardt. Yeah. And I was fortunate enough to see it last week uh, when Kelly Reichardt was here in person, actually at the Burns. For a preview screening, it is opening later in March. So if you are watching. T- if you are listening to this podcast in early March, um, you should go check it out later this month. But Kelly Riker is someone who I have adored for a really long time. I saw River of Grass, uh, which came out in 1994 or five in college and was really struck by it and how her filmmaking style is so at odds with kind of the mainstream style in general that it is very slow, very patient, very pensive, very thoughtful, and really good about making you sit with an interaction and sit with a moment or an image. 
And one of the other things that I've always really loved about her films is that she assumes the audience is intelligent, which is one of my favorite things Mm. for filmmakers to do in that the plot moves along in a way that it's not necessarily all spelled out for you that even though the film itself um is can be really quiet and slow you'll go from scene to scene and realize how much is actually happening in between those scenes and it can be so powerful um she kelly reichardt was last here um a few years ago for a q a with jonathan demi where they screened and spoke about her film meek's cutoff for Demi's series, Saddle Up Saturdays. Um, Meek's Cutoff is a really radical feminist spin on the Western. It's a lot of fun. It's definitely one I would recommend checking out if you have the time. Um, But First Cow was one that it's set in the Pacific Northwest, um, also during the Gold Rush. I'm watching a lot of Gold Rush movies these days, I guess. It's back. (laughs) Roaring 20s. Yeah, Yeah, we are. but uh, it, it it features um, a Jewish American and a Chinese immigrant who both people who in other parts of the country at the time would find it nearly impossible to find work or a place in society um, in the frontier are able to really establish themselves and set up a business that uh, is somewhat clandestine. I won't give too much of it away, but... It is a really lovely portrait of kind of what life was like surviving in the frontier there and also the the bonds and really tender relationships between men in that society um, that are forged by this sort of, I I guess, necessity, basically, that um, you have to link up with people to survive out there. There's not a whole lot out there if you're by yourself. And it just ends up being this absolutely gorgeous, staggering, really touching investigation of the way people are able to make a living in that era and carve out a space for themselves. And I, yeah, I was just really blown away by it. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, was a little under the weather last week, so I'm really, really Mm -hmm. bummed that I couldn't make it. But it's something I've been keeping my eye on and I'm excited to see it when we actually open it. That's that's on my list of things. Well, we'll talk about it afterwards, but it's on my list of things to see yeah. uh, coming up. Oh, the final thing I will say is that <clears throat> shout out to Evie the Cow, who is one of the stars of First Cow, as Great. you would as you would uh, assume. Is and she the first cow? <laughs> she's the first cow in that neighborhood. Okay, I'll and take it. <laughs> she's beautiful, and she has these great eyes. And during the Q&A, someone actually asked how they cast Evie, and the answer is like any other actor, they get photos and they pick the prettiest cow with the biggest oh eyes. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I just want to talk about how much I love Evie because she was she's really sweet. And the film is such an interesting investigation of man's relationship um, with other men, but also with animals and the natural world. And it's a really thoughtful, pretty beautiful portrait of that. Something you said that really stuck with me and something I really, really do love that filmmakers do is treating the audience as they're intelligent, as if they are intelligent, which we usually are. Um, I think one of the cardinal sins of a lot of films that can ruin a film is spelling out plot for you. I think, Mm -hmm. I don't think I ever said this on the air, but something that like two examples of that are hereditary. Mm. That I loved Hereditary up until up act until three. the act 
third act where light spoilers, I won't spoil what the film is yeah, or like what the plot is, but uh, Tony Collette literally opens a book and the plot is highlighted in the right. book. And then she goes on to her husband to explain the plot even further. And it totally just sucks the air out of that yeah. film. Uh, and Us does it as well, where mm. there's just a monologue just spelling out what the plot is. Right. Which is especially disappointing with Us because Get Out is not that. Right. That, not that's, even close. It was so yeah. disappointing. That, that one hurt even more. Um, so the fact that Kelly is smart enough to treat her audience with respect is, yeah. is huge. Yeah. She's just, she's really a filmmaker of immense talent. And I feel like she is so good at telling stories really plainly and honestly in a way I don't see anyone else doing. And it was, it was really special. Yeah. It's like same could go for uh kitty green with assistant. Yeah. Like she doesn't spell out what this film is about. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, okay. Our number one is probably the same thing. Portrait of a Lady on yep. Fire. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, I know I joked. Well, no, I didn't joke. I know I said Bad Boys is a perfect film. Uh, <laughs> this is like literally like one of the most beautiful films I've mm-hmm. ever seen and is legitimately perfect. Yeah. Um, another film, I'll just start out with the music stuff right away. Another mm-hmm. film that sparingly uses score yes. and is reliant on its perfectly, perfectly written characters to spell out and play out what this plot is yeah. or what the story is. Um, when there is music in the film, it is heavily effective mm-hmm. because it is reliant on some pieces in the plot um you know i it's i'm just gonna keep talking about music you, you go ahead yeah <laughs> i yeah i could talk about portrait of a lady on fire for hours i think yeah. <laughs> i came into it having seen girlhood and uh water lilies which were directed directed by celine siyama who directed Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and I loved Girlhood in particular. And she has long basically taken a look at sort of coming of age and different uh, periods of time in women's lives. And when I found out she was doing a period piece that was also a romance, I was kind of curious and a little bit skeptical. I agree. But was so blown away by the end result because... There, yeah, there are many, many things I could say about this film. I am still reeling from it. I know. That's why I wanted to throw it to you because yeah. I'm still like... <laughs> um, but I, what I took away from Portrait of a Lady on Fire was that it wasn't just a celebration of one person or one moment in someone's life so much as it was a celebration of the relationships that women have in their lives, be they platonic, familial, or romantic, that it was this unbelievable celebration of the bonds women form either you know through romance or through necessity um, because people work together or they're friends or um, they need something to happen and the ways in which women care for each other that are largely um, hidden from the outside world that um, there is a large subplot about a character needing an abortion and they're is a is a moment where um, this romance is going on and these people don't want to get out of bed, but as soon as they realize this person needs someone with them uh, to go to the abortion, they're immediately like, okay, we're going. Yeah. There's this um, 
there's all this evidence of the fact that all the women in the film have this deep knowledge of natural and herbal cure, natural and herbal approaches to abortion, that there's all these different things they try. And it's, it's so clear that it's just common knowledge to all of these women. There is the presence of a midwife and a doula, which is a tribute to the ways in which women have long passed down these traditions of medical care and had access to a lot of medical information that was still pretty foreign to male doctors at the time, but women were largely barred from the medical profession. So you have this deep appreciation for the kind of shared knowledge and understanding that women have and that these women, even if they're not necessarily that close, are so supportive of each other because they're bound by these and they're all oppressed by the patriarchy in different ways, that you have women across class really dealing with a lot of the same issues and talking about things and realizing that even if the minutia might be different um, in each of their situations, they're still bound by these shared experiences. And um, there's one in particular, coming back to score, where you see women start to sing and it's this really joyful, passionate, fervid moment um, that just seems to be this yeah the celebratory really um exciting movement that kind of like ties them together and a lot of that is established by what i think is one of the best screenplays i've ever seen um it won the screenplay award at can which yeah. is unsurprising um my biggest takeaway was how how like there's obviously there's dialogue in the film but how like sparse the dialogue is but how all the emotion is portrayed through the eyes of mm-hmm. the actresses it is insane how they're able to just emote so many different emotions just through the eyes and eye contact yeah. and how they're able to capture that so brilliantly. Um, and it, it really does carry the entire film and it makes you feel the the pops of the film even, film even harder. Yeah. yeah, that I the, the dialogue <clears throat> is so sparse, but so powerful that... Um, I mean, I've only seen it once and there are certain lines that are already just embedded in my brain um, because the general premise is that there's a, a woman who is to bear, is to marry. Um, she's kind of a higher society woman in Brittany, France, and uh, is reluctant to be painted because she doesn't want to be married against her will, understandably. And so instead of having a male portrait artist come, they eventually hire a female artist, um, Marianne, Marianne, and bring her to the island to paint her over time by posing as a companion for walks. So you have this one character who literally doesn't like to be looked at, is highly skeptical of everyone around her. And so in most of the beginning of the film all you get are these furtive glances and these sideways looks and you have to read so much into their expressions and the acting is just unbelievably yeah superb it's so powerful and it's just such a yeah i'm like literally getting overwhelmed by emotion just <laughs> thinking about it but there are so many lines like there is this one line where two of the characters um say to each other uh, did you dream of me? And the character responds, no, I thought of you. And the plot and this the screenplay are so deliberate in that regard that there is this really unique window into these women's lives where even though 
the circumstances of their lives don't allow them to be as free as they would truly like within the context of this setting, they exhibit as much agency as they possibly can, that they choose to sit for a portrait or not, that they choose to love someone or not, that they choose to support their fellow sisters or not, that there is this real desire for agency and control of of your life and your image. And the fact that it's done through a directing style that is Basically, if you were to look up the female gaze yeah. in in a dictionary, I would give you this movie um, because it is such a rejection of everything that the male gaze has been that you literally have a woman painting another woman who finally consents to sit for a portrait. That the, There's so much of the film that is about consent and agency and yep. having as much control over your life as you can and realizing that even when you can't have complete control of your life, that there are things that you can do um, to wield influence in those situations. And I was just so struck by what a bold and sympathetic all at the same time portrait it was of these characters. Yeah. And like kudos to the screenplay and just the, the structure of the story itself. Like you would think like the whole setup of the film, as you mentioned, like uh, this, this woman is hired to secretly paint a portrait. You would kind of like, I sure surely expected that like, she's going to find out she was getting painted. She's getting angry. Maybe they'll stay broken up. Maybe they'll make up and that's going to be the end of the film. Mm -hmm. Obviously that does happen. Light spoilers. That's not the point of the film. Um, But that's like midway. And then there's a whole beautiful, like sort of like a, like, going back to music for a second, like a, a B-side to yeah. the entire film that like totally changes the course of the genre. It goes from like this just day in the life kind of thing of this mm-hmm. painter to an actual romance. And it's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's portrayed stunningly. And like some of the little things that they plant throughout the entire film that pay off in a massive way at the end, especially yes. like the number thing. And yeah, yeah page 28, just sobbing. Oh my God. Yeah. And, the whole the one of the other musical moments is uh with um mm-hmm. her playing the the storm piece i forgot the name of the, the piece of the yeah, music um but showing how uh the the woman who's being uh painted says she never really been to a concert hall she never heard live music and the painter uh excuse me for forgetting the character's names um <laughs> painter showing off a piece of music about uh oncoming storm and and at the end of the film, there is a payoff with that. And mm-hmm. it's just like you hear the entire piece of music and just there's this like droning shot that is so, so well done. And yeah, yeah that, that's the thing with the film is just the payoffs are so satisfying and they're so strong and so poignant because of the brilliance of the filmmaking and the brilliance of the screenplay and story structure. Yeah. And I and I do also want to highlight we've talked about the acting and how much of the film is just communicated in these small looks and, and, you know, sideways smiles and stolen glances that it also is worth mentioning. And also it's called portrait of a lady on fire. The film is very much about painting and it is one of the most painterly films I've seen. I mean, part of it is that it's set on Brittany, this very, um, kind of tough Island off the coast of France. So you have this very, traditional sort of landscape painting setting that you have, you know, this island rising out of the ocean and this old manor house. But the way the film is constructed and the way it's shot is in and of itself so painterly and beautiful and in a way slow, but it feels deliberate like someone making a painting. It just felt 
so perfectly tied together in that way that the cinematography was sort of like the cherry on top. And speaking of like technical aspects, I just want to give a massive shout out to the sound design. Yeah. Especially the paint strokes, the pencil drawing, like all the stuff like that is, it's just, it sounded so satisfying. Just like <laughs> yeah. every time it just sounded so soothing. It just, it felt like I was in that room watching them paint. Yeah. And just, I felt like so relaxed and I was like, ah, oh, this, this is really right. nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's brilliant. If you haven't seen it, please go see it. Support yes. it. Yes. Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Definitely worth checking out. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, we have a couple uh, audience favorites. Yeah. That we didn't get a chance to mention. Pull them up on my phone. Um, one is by Kelsey Lynn Lewis. Mm. Somebody I kind of know. Uh, <laughs> she she only gave me a one word answer. She said the lodge, mm. uh, which is a film you and I both saw. Yes, I, I think you saw it. Yeah, okay. that, that was the yeah. first one. That was the first one. I think it was the first screening because it was a preview screening, and then it was Chopping Mall. Oh, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> Chopping Mall. So during, during the Halloween movie marathon uh, in 2019, yeah, um, the first screening of that was the Lodge, which was a preview screening. Shout out to Neon for giving us advance rights yes, on thank that. Thank you, Neon. Um, but yeah, so I'll throw it back to Mike. Yeah, no. Um, I think as we both mentioned on this podcast, I I'm sort of a horror hound in this, and um. I always get really excited when there's a very unique story to be told in the horror genre. So getting this preview screening back in October, 2019, I was really, really excited to see this. Um, it was originally supposed to come out, I believe in November. I think, it, I think it slipped from like Halloween season yeah. to November and then it slipped again to November, uh, to uh, February. Um, so I felt very, very grateful to neon again. Thank you, neon to get this <laughs> like very, very advanced screening. Yeah. Um, it is a very, this could be. This could sound stupid because it's part of the plot, also. But it's a very cold feeling film, mm -hmm. like like both literally and just metaphorically. It's winter. <laughs> it, it takes place around Christmas, uh, and there's a lot of snow. Yeah. Um, literally, I'm looking at the poster for the film. It's a snowflake. Um, <laughs> it's about a uh, a family, a, a father and two children, going off to a cabin uh, for for winter holiday or Christmas holiday with the father's new girlfriend. Uh, and the point of this is for the children to bond with the mm -hmm. the forthcoming stepmother because I think they're about to get married. Um, and then some spooky stuff happens. <laughs> this is kind of like the film, like the less you know, like the yeah. better. Um, it very much exceeds a lot of horror tropes, which I really appreciate. Um, it kind of sets up like the trailer. I'll just talk about what the trailer kind of sets up. Um, it sets it up to be like sort of like a demonic possession, sort of like again, horror tropey kind of film, but it very much flips that on its head in a very unique way, which again, mm -hmm. I won't spoil, um, that it felt incredibly satisfying. And yeah, that I didn't want to mention it on our top five because I knew Kelsey mentioned it, but yeah, this mm -hmm. is very close to being one of my favorite films of the year so far. Cause again, I am such a nerd when it comes to horror yeah. and yeah, it, it's also shot beautifully. Again, yes. it's, it's mostly taking place in this cabin that is uh, there's like a blizzard or a snowstorm going on. And it's just like the landscapes are just washed out whites, mm -hmm. um, but not like it's washed out whites. But like it makes a lot of the details kind of stand out, like a lot of the, yes. the footprints of the snow and a lot of like the trees. There's a couple barren, like abandoned houses that we visit throughout the film. Um, 
And a lot of times when the characters are out in the snow, it really makes the characters stand out and pop. Right. Uh, and like I'm thinking of the shots of people walking on yes. the frozen lake are yes. so stunning. Especially there's these like massive like just wide shots and like you just the character just pops up, pops out so well in this like barren landscape. Mm -hmm. And just you feel like the sense of being abandoned so hard, mm -hmm. which is terrifying. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I genuinely did love it. it like it's something that for a long time I, I didn't like I just leading up to this trailer or watching the trailers I thought like oh here's another conjuring <laughs> sure okay here we go um but kudos to the filmmaker Veronica friends for um really really flipping that expectation on its head mm -hmm. I really really liked it yeah yeah um what do you think of it oh I really enjoyed yeah. it like for that same reason that um I thought the cinematography is absolutely gorgeous mm. and it it takes what is daunting for the kids to start with you know meeting the new stepmom and turns it into something really truly horrifying yeah and i also felt actually i was glad that you had mentioned hereditary recently because yeah. this is one where i feel like it introduced elements of um religious cults and yeah. um <clears throat> sort of you know, beliefs outside the mainstream, but it didn't feel like it was all thrown in at the end, which is what Hereditary felt like to me. That yeah. it felt like it was working within this framework and working it into the plot of the story, but not in a way that felt forced or um, like totally out of place. Yeah, it felt appropriate to the characters and to the story. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, it wasn't just thrown in the third act to be like, oh crap, we need more scary stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I really dig it. If you haven't seen it, uh, highly recommend it. If yeah. you're looking for a spooky film, I'm glad that it did get pushed from October to February because it's a very good just winter film. I think so too. Yeah, yeah, that it's so fitting for the winter, and it just it is so effective in conjuring this deep sense of dread. Yeah, which is something, and and to take something as idyllic and beautiful as a snowy landscape and turn it into something really terrifying yeah. and um, nerve wracking, I think is really successful yeah yeah and going back to birds of prey like i do think it got a little buried but mm -hmm. that's under, um, horror is a hard genre to like be like a massive box office hit. for sure for uh, sure unless yeah. you're it <laughs> yeah that's true which uh one of the kids from it is in it oh is yeah in, you're right you're right one of yeah. the kids from stephen king's it is <laughs> in the lodge Jeez, it's so hard to say <laughs> um Cesar Suspedes says, uh, Weathering with You is my number one of the year so far. The animation is gorgeous, and Shikai going to 11 with his sky shots. Um, <laughs> Weathering with You is something I've desperately wanted to see for a very long time. Yeah, um, I have not either. But... It, it is uh, the next film from the filmmaker who who made uh, Your Name, mm -hmm. which is a beautifully heartbreaking anime that yeah. came out in, I guess it was last year at this point, or maybe 2018. Um you know, I don't know much about weathering with you because I want to like kind of like stay away, but it's something on my list to definitely catch up on this year. Absolutely, uh, it looks. I love your stunning. name, so yeah, yeah. I mean, it's beautiful. Um, and yeah, if, if it, I mean, judging by the trailers, if it's anything like your name in its animation style, like it looks like it's yeah pumped up to a lot, <laughs> as Caesar says. Yeah, yeah, and I do like the uh, the sky shots. Yeah, it's definitely. <laughs> <laughs> if you've seen uh, your name, the sky shots, just like the camera panning up to the sky and the sun like shining, it's uh, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, and then he also gave a shout out to uh, 1917, but he didn't feel like that was fair because he saw it in 2019, even <laughs> though it was a 2020 Riot release. Yeah. Um, that was, I counted that for 2020. Yeah. For me, I saw it in 2020 when we got out of the theater. Right. Um, I liked 1917. We talked about this during the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. for me, that film was all tech. Yeah. It's I, all cinematography. Yeah, like, it's, I, it's a Roger I Deacon enjoyed film. it. Yeah. I exactly like you said like it's a roger deakins film it's beautiful yeah. um it's a really uh technically impressive war story um i absolutely no shade at it it was just that it wasn't as exciting or original for me as some yeah. other films that came out in the past year or war films just in general yeah um, story-wise also it was very much saving private ryan yeah very similar mm-hmm. like and nothing wrong with that i mean right. I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of stories from, exactly and this, from like this is a true like story that. yeah, yeah. Like, this is a true story not, not to knock it but um yeah. you know stunning uh i something i didn't mention with the oscar episode a lot of the cameos if you want to say are like really daunting and weird yes and i will <laughs> say also weird because um frankly i think the huge thing that 1917 has on its side is, you know, the cinematography and the technological yeah. achievements that it has. And it was marketed largely as like, look at Colin Firth and Benedict Cumberbatch yeah. and all these people in this movie. And that for me is not the selling point that no. half of them are in it for two seconds. Yeah. And even then it's really not the emotional crux of the film. Definitely not. Yeah. And even when um, Mark Strong pops up because he wasn't in any of the trailers, I'm like, what the hell are you right. doing here? Yeah. It's like every every set piece had like its own like AAA actor and it felt really, really weird. Yeah. I felt like that with Little Women a little bit also when mm. I'm not going to say who, who the actor is because I wanted it to be a surprise for everybody else because it sure was a surprise for me. Yeah, the dad. <laughs> like, what? It took me out of it so much. I was like, what the are you doing yeah. here, man? Mm. Um, yeah. That's our audience's favorites. That's our top five. Uh, Paige, do you have a worst film that you saw this year? If you don't have one, I could go. Yeah, you go. You go first. I'm. A, I don't know that I have one, but I'll think okay. on it. Uh, the worst film I saw this year, and possibly the worst film I've ever seen in my life, <laughs> <laughs> is Blumhouse's Fantasy Island. And I, there's not much I can say about it because I tried to block <laughs> out a lot of this film from recent memory. Um, <sighs> Shout out again to my fiance Kelsey, who dragged me to this on Valentine's Day. Uh, hi, love you. Um, <laughs> this is a remake of the TV series Fantasy Island, except they try to put a horror spin to it. It is some of the worst writing I've ever heard in my life. It is some of the worst acting I've ever seen in my life. It is some of the worst worst written characters I've ever witnessed. My God, this film is just such a waste of like two and a two and two hours, 15 minutes, something like that. Like, yeah, like two hours and 20. Uh, no, wait, it's, it's under two hours. It felt like a freaking eternity. <laughs> it's just, I'll try to explain the plot. I, again, I want to block out this film from my memory so hard. These four strangers win a trip to fantasy Island. Uh, Fantasy Island, they meet like the the person who runs Fantasy Island, who is Michael Pena. <laughs> and watch, love, look love at, it. Love him. Love, love it. Michael Pena. Watching the opening credits, I saw Michael Pena, uh, Michael Rooker. Um, I forgot the actor's name, but uh, Jin Yang from Silicon Valley. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I saw his mm-hmm. name. I was like, okay, this could be good. At least those are my saving graces. 
But even then, like, no. Mm-hmm. Anyways, these, like, four winners <laughs> of, like, this elusive trip or whatever uh, get a trip to Fantasy Island. They meet Michael Pena, and Michael Pena does this whole spiel, like, your wildest fantasies could come true. Love that journey like, for him. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, like they won their fantasy or whatever so each person has their fantasy one person like wants some like 27 year old wants to get revenge on like a grade school bully it's like yo get over it it's okay <laughs> like I, i've been there but yeah get we've over all it, been bullied we, we grow from it that's like her wildest fantasy another person the only person who had like the appropriate fantasy was like she regretted saying no to a marriage so like that i believe that was cool sort of <laughs> um Jin Yang and his half brother uh, want to like just be cool and rich and stuff like that I guess Uh, and then another person just wanted to be in like a war Hmm. like he wanted to be in active service Uh, so those fantasies play out Jin Yang and the brother they find like a party mansion like there's just girls all over the place and like freaking drugs and like they're having the time of their life Bully Basher over here goes into like a dungeon and literally turns into hostile. It's very weird. Yeah. Uh, Warboy goes, yeah, into a random battlefield and it turns into like a Vietnam story for some reason. Mm. And then, yeah, the other woman, yeah, like goes into a room and like she has the chance to say yes to the, to the husband that or to the former lover that she abandoned a long time ago. Uh, and then they all take like terrible turns. Michael Pena at least like 57 times in the film says the fantasy have to have to play themselves out. You cannot <laughs> stop them. Once they're done, you're good. Uh, so obviously it being a horror film, they all go terribly wrong. Yep. And uh bully basher tries to stop the fantasy. They eventually like find a cave that like, there's this like magical rock that's controlling all the fantasies. And the, the rock is like, by the way, I should have mentioned this like 20 minutes ago. Spoilers for fantasy. Island. I don't care. <laughs> um, this like magical rock is like has control of Michael Pena because the magical rock is bringing his wife back to life because the wife died of cancer or something. So he has to be like the caretaker of the island. And it's just so, so dumb. At some point, like the the brothers get attacked by like the cartel, which speaking of distracting actors, uh, one of the dudes from Sons of Anarchy pops up as like this cartel mm. boss thing just shooting up the place. Okay. They eventually turn into like zombies or something because they can't die. A lot going on. There's a lot going on. If you're gonna see a horror <laughs> film in 2020, see The Lodge. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't Jesus. And like we were talking about before uh, we started uh, recording, this was a Sony picture, so it seems like Blumhouse just had the license for Fantasy Island mm-hmm. for some reason, and just gave it to Sony. Like I'm sure they sold it for a ton of money, yeah. or like licensed it for a ton of money. And man, this is a poorly made film. <laughs> um. And then they tried, kudos, I've never watched the original show, but kudos them for trying to tie it back to the original show. I, apparently there's a character in the original show called Tattoo. And at the end of the film, uh, throughout the entire film, uh, the Jin Yang character, I'm so sorry I keep calling you Jin Yang. I know you have a real name. <laughs> um, he's He is being called T by like his brother and, and he's like, hey, don't call me T. You know, I don't like that name, blah, blah, blah. So at the end of the film, Michael Pena turns to him and he's like yo why do they call you T he's like oh I got a really bad tattoo back in the day and he like pulls down his shirt and he has the word tattoo written on his chest and the film ends with a drone shot pulling back and Michael Pena like welcome to Fantasy Island tattoo and then it's credits <laughs> it's, 
if any of that sounded appealing, like go for it, man. I credit to you. Like, you know what? Steal it. Just go for it. I know I'm not supposed to say that. Steal this film. I don't care if you have any interest in this or if you have any love for Fantasy Island. Go for it. Uh, but man, the film just made me angry from like minute two. <laughs> oh, and there was like a plot twist that like bully person like she was controlling it the entire time. I don't know how, but like that was the mm, twist. Of course, yeah. Um, hey, do you have a worst film that you saw this year? I don't have a, a worst new film that I saw this year, but I will say... Um, I did have the pleasure of rewatching a terrible yet amazing film from the 90s about two weeks ago, and that movie is Face Off. Yes. <laughs> starring Nicolas Cage and John Travolta. I was talking about Face Off last night with Kelsey. <laughs> I mean, it comes up a lot. Um, There's a remake in the works. I did hear that. I am so curious to see how that turns oh, no, out. We're going day um, one. <laughs> yeah. But that was one that I happened to catch on TV about one minute after it started. Hadn't seen it in years, even though it gets memed and talked about a lot on the internet. Um, but that is, like, you can't see me right now, but I am doing a chef's kiss sort of uh, I'm, do, I'm doing the face-off gesture. motion. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> yeah, my face. Off. Oh. Anyway, yeah, I... Um, not if you haven't seen it, you need to get. I mean, it's been almost twenty years. Like it's about time that you watch this movie. <laughs> um, actually, more than twenty years. But it is a really superb uh, tale of Nicolas Cage. Well, actually, I guess I'm trying to. Th so Nicolas Cage. It's very confusing. There's a lot of face swapping. I know. I, I'm like <laughs> trying to describe who the original person is that. John Travolta is in the film, has a family, and ends up getting his face swapped with a murderer. Sure. Named who is played by Nicolas Cage. So then in this scenario, Nicolas Cage. <laughs> It's so hard to describe. You've dug yourself to a hole <laughs> with this I one. This is <laughs> that basically, John Travolta and Nicolas Cage end up in each other's bodies, more or less. Um, <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> and hijinks ensue, <laughs> which is a really uh, G-rated way of saying that. Uh, but it's, um, it's a real romp. Yeah, it's it's it is a wild movie that is incredibly entertaining. I had seen it many times before, but my sister had not, and the whole time she just kept looking at me and going, "What?" And really, that's that's what the whole movie is. And I would highly recommend checking it out. So it is not a new one, but it is a really bad movie that is also really, really, really great. You know what? Sorry, portrait of a lady on fire. My favorite film twenty twenty is Face Off. Yeah, I. It's not going to happen, but I really want them to bring Nick Cage back I mean, <laughs> for the remake. I feel like they have to. Shout out to Nick Cage. Yeah. Sure. Renaissance in 2020. Yeah. Or really 2019 with 2019 Mandy. 2019 Mandy, yeah. Um, I want to end with what you're excited about coming up. If you have any off the top of your head. I have one, at least. You go first. Uh, Antlers. Mm. Have you seen the trailer for this? I have not. It is a horror film obviously uh produced by, i forgot the act uh, the director's name if you want to look up antlers really quick mm -hmm. for me um but it's produced by guillermo del toro i think specifically guillermo's doing oh the, i do know what you're talking guillermo's about doing yes. the creature designs yes. um thank god um is a film that follows a scott purely, cooper is scott cooper thank you um purely based off the trailer it, it seems like it's a film about a kid who's like sort of an outcast and he sort of 
befriends this creature um, and he is kind of becoming the caretaker of this creature, feeding him animals and mm-hmm. possibly other things. And it just looks really, really dark and effed up. And yeah, that's what I want to see <laughs> yeah. in, in a horror film, especially like if Guillermo's doing the creature designs. Hell yeah, man. Yeah. And kudos to the trailers. I think I think the final trailer just dropped, um, which I was hesitant to watch. But uh, I love when trailers don't show what the big bad monster looks like. Right. I'm very excited to see what this thing looks like. And yeah, it, it looks very reminiscent of um, like if you took uh, Netflix's The Ritual uh, to mm. like a town <laughs> and not in the woods. Uh, it seems like very reminiscent of that kind of vibe. And hey, if you haven't seen The Ritual... I recommend it. It's a Netflix original. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, modern The Witch. That's mm-hmm. that's my pitch for it. Um, yeah, I'm very excited for that. Um, and then going back to like our nerdy talk, uh, excited for Wonder Woman. Yeah, I'm very yeah. excited for Wonder Woman 1984. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm super psyched for that. I d- speaking of DC films, I did really enjoy Wonder Woman um, for the reason that um, a lot of people have talked about in that. I have long been a comic book movie fan and a comic book fan and seeing a film with a female lead where even the fight scenes with the Amazons were choreographed by a woman for women's bodies yeah, um, was the kind of thing that was really powerful for me to see on screen. And I believe pretty strongly in the power of representation. And that was one that really registered with me in a way that as I was leaving the movie, I was like, oh, is this what dudes feel like after every comic book movie? Um, yes. it was just, yeah. <laughs> and that's not to say that, um, I haven't related to male characters in the past. I absolutely have. Um, but it was really, really powerful to see a one, a one, I was about to say a wonder woman. I meant to say a woman, but yeah, a wonder woman on a screen woman. was really awesome. And yeah, it's been, it's been really, uh, fulfilling to kind of see that come to fruition. I'm really excited for another one. I think Patty Jenkins did a great job with it. So she really did. I'm I'm really thrilled about that. Um, another one that I'm actually excited for at the time of the re- this recording, it's actually showing at the Burns. And the reason I haven't talked about it as one of my favorites of the year was because I saw it in 2019. Um, but one that I think is well worth checking out is The Whistlers. Yeah. The original title is La Gomera. But it is a neo-noir that crosses Romania and the Canary Islands in Spain. It has a crooked cop, a femme fatale, a largely dead whistling language that is an actual language that they learn to communicate. Um, That movie is a lot of fun. If you like noir, if you like mysteries, if you like thrillers, it is well worth a a shot. It is super stylish, really fun. Um, and takes you all over the world. It's just such a whirlwind. And uh, it is Romanian. Um, so if you haven't really explored contemporary Romanian cinema, I would say this is a really fun one to dive in with. And yeah, that was on my list. Um, stuff that we are currently showing. That and Emma, I need yes. to catch up on. I really, I really haven't seen see. Emma yet, but um, it looks spectacular. It looks great. Yeah. Um, I'll give a shout out to a couple more that are coming out like more recently. Yeah. Um, I forgot A Quiet Place 2 is out in like yes. a couple weeks. Oh my God. Yes. I'm so excited for A Quiet Place. Should yes. Alamo trip that. Yes. Um, first one's phenomenal. Yeah. I, like for, I, I think it was John Krasinski's directorial debut. It was. That's insane, man. And he, I will say, so as Mike has discussed, Mike is a big horror fan. I tend to be a big scaredy cat. I'm also but a big fan of 
seeing horror movies with Paige. <laughs> I, I am a big jump scare person. If you have ever walked up behind me in a car or tapped me on the shoulder, uh, you would know that. But um, I'm someone who, yeah, because I jump scare really easily, I tend to shy away from a lot of horror movies. But if something is a good movie, I don't want to deprive myself of that experience by not going to see it. Um, and so I saw A Quiet Place twice in theaters. And the idea of me seeing a horror film in theaters twice is basically unheard of, which would be a testament to that. But um, John Krasinski's directorial debut, including directing himself and his wife, which is very difficult. Yeah. And also was a big rewriter on the script. Um, I had the pleasure of reading the script before John Krasinski got his hands on it. And it is an entirely different story. I mean, something I was, again, going back to my tin foil hat theory with Sonic yeah. the Hedgehog, um, I was certain we were going to come out of that movie and it was going to be a Cloverfield sequel. Mm -hmm. Like, no doubt. Even yep. the creatures in the film look like Cloverfield A monsters. little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But yeah, I'm Quiet Place 2. I'm glad it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm very excited about, I, I thought the first one was, um, it, it, it is a horror movie and there are parts that are very scary, but at its core, it was a really well-written in terms of three-act structure story about yeah. a family and the yeah. way a family survives when faced with obstacles. And in a way, that's sort of just like the quintessential, you know, survival story. Yeah. Yeah. A um, couple quick ones. Uh, St. Maud by A24. Yes. New horror film. Again, like something that looks heavily based on religious overtones. It looks creepy as all hell. Yeah. Um, something I'm incredibly excited for. I don't know if you've seen the trailer for this. Promising Young Woman. No. So it's, we'll watch the trailer after we stop recording. Um, it's a, it follows a woman who like plays, he, she goes to a bar every weekend and plays like very overly drunk and whatever to kind of lure creepy dudes in, goes home with the dudes and then like something happens and like, it's very much like a revenge tale and I am so here for succubus-centered films. <laughs> yes. Uh, and something you will very much appreciate when we watch this trailer, uh, it has the most dope cover of Toxic by Britney Spears I've I ever heard in my life. I <laughs> love covers of Toxic. Yes. I have three separate covers of Toxic in my Spotify library right now. And, I mean, Britney Spears is the queen. Obviously, nothing will top Obviously. the original. But uh, there, I have heard some really eerie takes on that. It, that are really Wait, it's satisfying. So good. Okay, I'm very excited. And I will jump in too and also say that another one I'm really excited for is David Lowry's The Green Knight. Yes. Starring Dev Patel. Yes. I am a really big David Lowry fan. I don't know if I've talked about it before on this podcast, but I I love David Lowry. I think that he has a really spectacular vision. And so the idea of him now doing a medieval sort of Knights of the Round yes. Table tale with Dev Patel could not be more off the wall, and I am so psyched about that one. It was supposed to premiere at South by Southwest, I know. which at the time of the recording has since been canceled. Um, so we're going to have to wait a little bit longer to, to see some initial reviews on that, but I am definitely going to be there on day one. If you play video games, this is Dark Souls of the movie. <laughs> I am so in for it. Um, something I, I'm just going off like... Q2 things. Uh, two more. Uh, Antebellum, the Janelle Monet horror flick that's coming out, oh, which I don't yeah. really know what it's about, but it's super intriguing. Yes. Janelle uh, Monet, great actress, even better singer. Yes. So good. Um, and then finally, just because I'm so curious, The New Mutants is finally coming out. Oh, yeah. So if you don't know what The New Mutants is, it's an X Men film. 
or I guess like X-Men spinoff back before that was in development back before Disney bought Fox and all yeah, that was happening like years and years, like ago. years and years ago. And it kept getting pushed and pushed and pushed. It was originally supposed to come out. I want to say it was originally, originally supposed to come out like two years ago. Then it got pushed to April last year. And then after that, it got pushed to April this year. And it was just kind of in development hell forever. And it was, it was done. Like it was shot. I think there was like some reshoots, but it was finished mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes. Um, when Disney bought Fox, I could have sworn they were just going to push it to Disney plus or just straight out cancel it. Cause mm-hmm. obviously if you know, like the whole confusing MCU X-Men, fantastic Four, Deadpool, Spider-Man thing, um, X-Men didn't belong in the MCU. I was sure that Disney was going to say, screw it and cancel it. Um, but no, it's coming out. It's a horror take on the comic book, the new mutants. And yeah, I'm really interested in it. Um, and speaking of MCU really quick, Black Widow. I'm stoked. Yeah. yeah. I'm, the new trailer did just drop yes. again at the time of the recording this past week. Um, we got a teaser of the villain. Oh, Taskmaster. And, baby. Yeah. Can't um, wait. Yeah. That cast is, is really stacked and I'm very excited for Black Widow. Speaking yeah. of, of, woman-centered yeah. comic book films. Anyways, we could go on for like hours now. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's literally just like spring. So spring seems like it's going to be stacked. Yeah. So t- tune in for Q2, Q2. of uh, <laughs> best of the year so far yeah. in a few months. But yeah, <laughs> that was great. And you should see everything that we've mentioned in this yes. episode. <laughs> yeah, let's steal it. <laughs> All right. Um, thanks so much for listening. This podcast is supported by the Jacob Burns Film Center. It is mixed, edited, and published by Mike and produced by me. Don't forget to subscribe and review the Jacob Burns Filmcast wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people find us and ensures you'll stay in the loop as new episodes are released. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and YouTube as Jacob Burns Film Center or JBFC. If you have a question, comment, topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode or want to tell us what you've seen so far this year and enjoyed, you can email us at jbfilmcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you at the movies. Go see Sonic.